trials and the trials ago, one of my daughters came to me in our house when we were in the house alone. She was about 14 years old. And she took me aside in the kitchen and said, Dad, do you ever doubt? And when I looked at her face, I noticed tears were running down her cheeks. And I took her in my arms and said, of course, of course, every Christian doubts. We remain sinners, even though Christ has redeemed us. And she said to me, I'm so relieved. I reminded her of the man who said to Jesus, Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. Jesus, Peter, James, and John had come down from the Mount of Transfiguration. And immediately a man who had brought this demon-possessed son to Jesus' disciples told Jesus that his disciples were not able to cast the demon out. Only Mark records the words of the father of the child to Jesus. If you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And in the words of Jesus, Mark alone records these words of Jesus. If you can believe, all things are possible to him who believes. And in the words of the Father, which he cried out with tears, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. This passage has much to teach us about faith. This is an example of faith. Now I want to ask you this morning, is this just one particular example of one man's faith in a specific situation? Or is God giving us today in his word a lesson concerning all of our trust in him in every generation, in every situation? And the answer is yes. It's not either or, but both and. It's not just the particular faith of one man in a specific situation thousands of years ago. It is a lesson to us concerning your faith and my faith. This man's faith is a picture of your faith and my faith. Notice the symbolism of death and resurrection in this story. In verse 26, when the evil spirit cried out and convulsed the boy and came out of the boy, he became as one dead. So that many said, he is dead. And then in verse 27, Jesus lifted him up and he arose. So we're looking here at a picture of physical death and resurrection and a picture of spiritual death and resurrection by faith. This is a picture for us today of all faith, of your faith and my faith. No faith is perfect in degree. This is a picture of your faith and my faith as we come to church today. This is a picture of your faith and my faith as we come to the Lord's table today. This is a picture of your faith and my faith as we pray, as we bring our offerings, as we serve Christ in the world, 
as we witness to others, as we live our lives, as we marry, as we have children, as we deal with our children, as we face trials, as we exercise faith, and particularly as we face death, and as we die. Listen to what John Calvin said about the words of the boy's father. Lord, I believe. He declares that he believes and yet confesses his unbelief. Although these two things seem inconsistent, there is no one who does not experience the same thing in himself. Nowhere is there a perfect faith. And therefore it follows that we are partly unbelievers. Yet in his perfect kindness, God pardons us and reckons us as believers by means of our small portion of faith. Meanwhile, it is for us to shake off carefully the remnants of unbelief that remain within us and fight against them and ask the Lord to correct them. And so often as we toil in this struggle, we must flee to him for help. Now that's the sermon for today. We might as well pronounce the benediction. Calvin said it much better than I can say. But you want to see that this passage is a passage most helpful to you and me. And this is a passage that has meant more and more to me in my older age. I return to this passage of Scripture again and again. As I preach from time to time in retirement, I'm trying to preach on texts and subjects which have been particularly helpful to me over many years and which I hope might be helpful to generations to come. And so today's text is one which I have returned to over and over in my life, especially these words, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. I have prayed this prayer many many times. And today I'm going to ask you, have you ever said to Jesus, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. I hope that this will bring comfort to you and a challenge to you as you see that it describes your faith. If you have never prayed this prayer, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. I would have to question whether or not you know your own heart. Whether you really know what it means for sinful people to say, I believe. For all our faith is, as different writers have put it, believing unbelief or unbelieving faith. We do see here a comfort and a challenge. A comfort when this man says, help my unbelief. How is this a comfort to hear? You need to hear that your faith does not heal or save. Now, does that sound strange? We're, we're accustomed to hearing about faith healing, and we're accustomed to hearing about salvation by faith. Now, the Bible sometimes does speak this way, such as in James 5.15, the prayer of faith will save the sick. 
Or, as Jesus says to the woman with the hemorrhage, your faith has made you whole. He also says the same kind of thing to blind Bartimaeus and to the sinful woman who was wiping her, uh, wiping Jesus' feet with her hair and her tears, and to the one leper who returned to give thanks to Jesus. To all of these, Jesus says, your faith has healed you. Your faith has made you whole. But if you carefully interpret Scripture with Scripture, you can see that when Jesus talks like that, Faith is so closely and vitally connected as the instrument that Jesus often uses that he says, your faith has made you well. But what Jesus is actually saying here, by, by looking from Scripture to Scripture, I have made you well through the instrumentality of your faith. So it is God who heals. It is not, in the ultimate sense, faith that heals but God that heals. He sometimes uses faith as an instrument in healing, and that faith is so closely tied to healing that it may be said that faith heals, such as the prayer of faith will save the sick. But we know that that is not always the case. We must always pray if it is God's will, and Jesus will sometimes use the prayer of faith to heal the sick. And it is God who saves. It is not faith that saves. Faith is not the ground of our salvation, but the instrument of our salvation. We are not saved by faith, but we are saved through faith. The Locus Classicus, of course, is Ephesians 2, 8, 9. By grace are you saved through faith. And that not of yourselves, it's a gift of God, not of works lest any man should boast. So when Paul says it is by grace through faith, the word through does not mean on account of faith, but by means of faith. Faith is not the ground of salvation, but faith is an instrument through which Christ gives salvation. Faith has been compared to the hand of a beggar which receives a gift. The gospel is the ground of our salvation. The cross is the basis of our salvation. The resurrection of Jesus, the doing and dying of Jesus. Faith is the instrument of our salvation, our connection with Christ. It's not the strength of our faith that counts, but the object of our faith. Our faith is not faith in faith, but it is faith in Christ. Now, as I have preached, <clears throat> over the years, over the last 50 years now, uh, I find that people will come to me and say, well, as you have taught us, or as you have often said, and I realize how often I have repeated myself. I, I, I haven't been back through my records, but my rough estimate is I've preached somewhere around 2,873 times. I'm not exactly sure of that, but I've preached many times, and in those times, I'm sure I've repeated myself many, many times. As some of you heard this sermon before, you know that I'm preaching that. But there's one quote that people have come to me and said, you know, as you have often said, and they've given me a quote, and I realize I have quoted that quote more than any other quote in all those 50 years, except for the Bible, of course. 
And this is a quote from the great bishop uh, of Liverpool in the 1800s, J.C. Ryle. This is what Ryle said, and I have quoted many times. Weak faith in a strong plank will get you across the river. But strong faith in a weak plank will land you in the river. You understand what he was saying? I've walked across the river on a very strong plank, a very great, huge log, and the river across which I walked was the Mississippi River. Maybe some of you walked across that same log that is right up there in Minnesota, where the Mississippi River begins. And it's very, very narrow as it flows out of the lake. And you can walk across it on this huge, huge log that has the top of which has been shaved, and so you have a platform on which you walk. Now, I was pretty shaky walking across even that, uh, that huge log. But what mattered was not the strength of my faith or my own ability, but the stability of that log on which I walked. So it's not our faith that saves, but Christ who saves. He saves us through the instrument of faith which He gives us. It's not the strength of faith, but the object of faith. Does that mean then that doubt is okay? Absolutely not. Very often today, doubt is almost encouraged. Doubt is almost dismissed. Don't be concerned about your doubt. It doesn't matter. But you see, I wasn't telling my daughter it's okay to doubt because we're all sinners but that it is a comfort to hear this man take his doubt to Jesus and say to Jesus, help my unbelief. And so this is a great comfort to us. But there's another side of the coin. This is not only a comfort, but a challenge. It's very important to remember that this man said, Lord, I believe. And then he says, please, Lord, make my faith stronger. He's not content with doubt. And we should not be content with doubt. Doubt is sin. Doubt is distrusting Christ. Jesus commends strong faith. And Jesus condemns weak faith. Faith is a necessary and important instrument of salvation. The father of the boy says that the demon has often thrown him both into the fire and into the water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, if, Jesus, if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, if you can believe, all things are possible to him who believes. And immediately the father of the child cried out and said with tears, Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. Faith is a necessary instrument. Without it, his son would not have been made well in this case. Unbelief is the greatest of sins. And in a way, unbelief is the root of all sin. But Jesus commended strong faith. Remember how Jesus said to the centurion, I have not found such great faith, not even in Israel. Jesus is said to have marveled at the centurion's faith. It pleased Jesus. He commended his faith to the Syrophoenician woman who brought her demon-possessed daughter to Jesus. He said to her, O woman, 
great is your faith. Let it be to you as you desire. So Jesus commended strong faith. In that passage that we heard read this morning in the epistle lesson, Hebrews 11, you see the great blessing and benefit of faith. We heard, but without faith it is impossible to please him, for he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. And then uh, the writer of Hebrews, I believe, was the apostle Paul, went on to say, time would fail me to tell of Gideon and Barak and Samson and Shephah, also of David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith subdued kingdoms, worked righteousness, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the violence of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, out of weakness were made strong, became valiant in battle, turned the flight of the armies of aliens. Faith is important. Faith is necessary. Faith is a great blessing and benefit. And we should expect great things from God and attempt great things for God. Jesus commended strong faith and Jesus condemned weak faith. Here at the foot of the Mount of Transfiguration, uh, Jesus answered this man. He answered him and said, Oh, faithless generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I bear with you? Bring him to me. Did he say this to the man? Or did he say it to the scribes who were standing around trying to entrap Jesus? Did he say it to the disciples? Did he say this to this generation in general? And the answer is yes. He was saying this to all of the above. The disciples said, why could we not cast it out? And Jesus said, because of your unbelief. And then uh, faith is necessary and important throughout the gospel. And that's why we see these words are a comfort, but also a challenge. Don't be content with weak faith. Jesus said to his own disciples many times, but especially in the calming of the storm. Oh, ye of little faith, why did you doubt? That was one of the worst things Jesus could say to his disciples. They did not believe on him. And when he says they did not believe on him, he's saying, you do not trust me. Nothing worse than he say to his disciples than you are not trusting me. And so we are redeemed. But we're still sinners and our faith is far from perfect. We know that we are children of God now and it does not yet appear what we shall be, what our faith shall be like. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him for we shall see him as he is. But in the meantime, we must still pray, help my unbelief. Faith is our connection with Christ. If our connection with Christ is broken. We have no power. The power is in Christ, not in the connection, not in the faith. But without the connection, we receive no power. We must be content with little faith. It isn't just little intellectual assent. It is little trust. It means that we don't trust God. And when we don't trust God, what does the Bible say? That makes us a liar. If we do not trust what God has said, if we do not believe on Christ, we sometimes think that our despair is humble, or we think that our despondency is humble, or maybe our depression is because we're so humble. But in reality, it is pride. 
In reality, it is sin that we do not trust in Christ. So faith is not faith in faith, but faith in Christ. Faith is not convincing yourself beyond a shadow of a doubt that something is true or that something will happen. It's not whatever you really believe will happen will happen as if your faith makes it happen. Some of you who are old enough might remember Reverend Ike who used to encourage his followers to cut out a picture of a Cadillac and put it on the refrigerator and then keep telling yourself, God is going to give this to me because I'm asking for it. God is going to give it to me. And automatically, he taught his disciples, God will give you whatever you ask if you have enough faith. And of course, that is nonsense. It is faith in faith. And faith in faith is futile. We are not a people of faith in general, but a people of faith in Christ. How often do you hear the phrase, a people of faith? I was a little afraid when I heard uh, uh, Vice President Pence at Grove City yesterday, the commencement. He came to his last point and he said, I want to be sure that you have faith. I said, oh, here we go again. Faith in faith. And thankfully he did say you must have trust in God and in God's providence. So, it is trust in Christ, who he is, what he's done, his promises, his gospel, his life, his death, his burial, his resurrection, his ascension. Now, today, let's face it, the gospel message often seems unbelievable to the world. It certainly seems unbelievable to the Bill Mars and the Richard Dawkins. They gathered together a week or so ago, you may have heard in Washington, D.C., 10,000 of them, or 30,000 of them, depending upon who you believe, who you have faith in or trust in. But uh, there they gathered. The secularists who were demanding that their voice be heard and that America be governed according to secularism. The atheists had their march on Washington. There weren't as many of them, but there were quite a few. And they believe that the faith that you profess today as you come to the Lord's table is nonsense. They believe it is definitely harmful to the world and harmful to you. We hear the world say that what we believe is unbelievable. And often, sadly, it often seems unbelievable to us. We've heard these things all our lives, and some of us have professed to believe them all our lives. Do we really come to grips with how radically unbelievable the gospel message is? The gospel message centers in the incarnation. That's what the gospel, in one word, that is the gospel. The incarnation. Jesus Christ was God in the flesh. The God-man, both God and man. And that's what Christians believe. The deity of Christ. That is the very center of the gospel. With this man, the question was, who is Jesus? And that is the question of all the gospels. Over and over again, you hear this said by various people in the four gospels. Who is this? Who is this? Who is this? 
Is this the Messiah? Is this the King? Is this the one prophesied in the Old Testament Scriptures? Is he now here? Is God in the flesh among us? We believe in the incarnation. And we believe in the atonement on the cross. Can you really believe that? That one man who died 2,000 years ago enabled God to forgive all of your sin, made it possible for all of your sins to be forgiven, forgave your sins 2,000 years ago in one death on the one cross, and then the resurrection of the heart of the gospel. You know, Paul says, if Christ is not risen, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Face it. Face it. Head on, like Paul does, like Paul encourages us to do. If Christ is not risen, then all is in vain, and there is no meaning or purpose in the universe. Life after death. We believe that to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Now, that's much easier to believe about a wonderful Christian than we've known, isn't it? But when we face death ourselves, do we really believe that when we cease to be conscious in this life immediately, we consciously awake in the presence of Jesus Christ? Can that be possible? Can we really believe that? Richard, uh, Richard Dawkins or Bill Mars would say, can you really believe that? You've got to be kidding me. You believe that? Now, as I grow older, my closest friends are dying. This is a reality that you're all going to face one of these days. And it began with me about a few years ago when the elder, uh, to which I was closest in my ministry perhaps, and perhaps the most uh, uh, gifted and, and influential elder I had worked with over many years, he died at a very early age. And that was the hardest funeral that I had ever had hardest funeral service I ever had in my ministry. And then last year in October my mentor under whom I interned in my seminary days a man who was who preached my ordination sermon and who was the best man in our wedding if he had lived for four more days he would have died on the 50th anniversary of his preaching my ordination sermon on the subject, the sovereignty of God and the salvation of sinners. And then, already this year, one of the closest elders to me in my ministry in another church died when we attended a funeral. And now, two closest elders to me in churches where I have been pastor, other churches are dying. They may have already died this morning and we have not yet heard that they're very close to death. What are we to make of life after death? Can this be possible? Either it is true or it is not true. Do you believe that? Lord, I believe that I have to say, help my lack of faith, help my unbelief. Even Christian in 
Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress as he was coming to the celestial city at the end. And he sees the beautiful city glittering of gold there, but there is a river that he must cross before he can get there. And two men tell him that he must go through this river. And he says, is there no bridge to get across? Is there no other way? The river is very broad. The river is, seems to be very deep. And he is stunned. And the, the angels say to him, you must go through or you cannot come to the gate. The river of death. The pilgrims then began to inquire if there were no other way to the gate to which they answered yes. But there have been not any save two to which Enoch and Elijah have been permitted to tread that path since the foundation of the world. Nor shall until the last trumpet shall sound. And then he began to respond and no way could be found that he might escape the river. And then the angel said to him, you shall find it deeper or shallower as you believe in the king of the place. Believe. It will be shallower if you believe in the king of the place, the celestial city. And then as he approached the river with his friend and companion, Hopeful, Christian began to sink and cried out to his good friend, Hopeful, and said, I sink in deep waters. The billows go over my head. All his waves go over me. This is a man who said, I believe. But now he seems to be an unbeliever, even at the point of death. And then Hopeful says to him, Be of good cheer, my brother. I feel the bottom, and it is good. And then Christian said, Ah, my friend, the sorrows of death have encompassed me about. I shall not see the land that flows with milk and honey. And with that, a great darkness and horror fell upon Christian so that he could not see before him. He was much in the troublesome thoughts of the sins that he had committed both since and before he began to be a pilgrim. And then hopeful sounds this word. Be of good cheer. Jesus Christ maketh thee whole. And with that, Christian broke out with a loud voice. Oh, I see him again. And he tells me, when you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overflow you. Then they go to courage. And the enemy was after that as still as a stone until they were gone over. We also believe that God is working all things together for good to those who love the Lord and who are the call according to his purpose. Do you believe that? Do you really believe that? Do you believe that when you're in the well, as Joseph was, that God is working his purpose out? And we profess to believe that the promise is to you and to your children, but when our children disappoint us in so many ways, we are so fearful and we, we are disappointed and we don't really know whether we can believe Christ's promise or not. Martin Lloyd-Jones, in his famous book uh, uh, about depression, spiritual depression, its cause and cure, says that the ultimate cause of all spiritual depression is unbelief. But does the truth depend on whether or not you believe it or how strongly you believe it? Back when we were 
uh, seminary students we were young churches that called us in now and uh, Doug Wilson calls them thunder puppies you've heard about those thunder puppies one of the things we used to say was God said it I believe it that settles it I've come to see that the middle step does not make it true God said it that settles it it doesn't matter whether I believe it or not or whether you believe it or not you better believe it but that does not make it true at the end of Mark the great commission says he who believes and is baptized shall be saved but he who does not believe shall be condemned it's not okay not to believe and so these words are a challenge and a comfort I want you also to see that there's a growth in faith a progress. There are degrees of faith. Faith can be weak, it can be growing, and it can be more mature. And faith has a birth, a growth, and a maturity. Paul says to the Philippians, I'm convinced that he who began a good work in you will go on completing it until the day of Christ Jesus. It doesn't have to be perfect faith in degree to be the instrument through which God works. Faith and unbelief are mixed together in the same heart. Because there is no perfect faith. The greatest Christians had weak faith like this man's faith. Peter, the only man other than Jesus who was able to walk on water, he sank when he took his eyes off Jesus and put his attention upon the wind and the waves surrounding him, the circumstances surrounding him. Even Peter began to sink. Peter was the one who was the spokesman for the twelve. He was the one when Jesus said, Who do you say that I am? Peter said, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. He spoke for the church of all ages when he professed faith in Christ as the Son of the living God. And the same Peter was cursing and swearing, denying that he ever knew this Jesus at all. His faith was weak. David, the man after God's own heart, the, the, the sweet psalmist of Israel, committed adultery and murder. That's how strong David's faith was. Paul suffered for Christ. You can read a whole paragraph there in, in 2 Corinthians 12. Within, Paul says, when I am weak, then am I strong. You see, the more mature the faith, the more it is aware of its own weakness. The true believer is known by his warfare as well as by his inward peace. It's a contradiction. Trust and doubt in the same person. Hope and fear in the same person. Does this ring true with you today? I know that it does. I know that it rings true with every one of you. Because all true believers cry, Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. Are you thankful for this passage? Are you thankful that it was read today? Does it speak to your heart? Do you identify with this man and say, this is an accurate statement of my own faith? As I said, if you never say, help my unbelief, I am very fearful of you. The weakness and sinfulness of our hearts is true all other relationships with God and with one another. What we've been saying about faith is also true of hope and love. 
you may have true repentance, but it can never be in this life perfect repentance. And so if we say to someone, I repent, and then later you come back and do the same things all over again, and as the Puritan said, we must repent of our repentance and bathe our tears in the blood of Christ. There's no perfect repentance. There's no perfect forgiveness except God's forgiveness. And so if you say to your husband or wife, will you forgive me? You wait for the answer and they say, yes, I will forgive you. And later on, they say, I thought you would forgive me. And you have to say, I did, but please forgive the weakness and inconsistency of my forgiveness. I know that sometimes I act as if I haven't forgiven you. There's no perfect hope, sure hope of eternal life. Even for true believers, they face death with fear and trepidation, as we mentioned the pilgrim at the river of death. There's no perfect love. There's no perfect love for Christ. Remember when Christ asked uh, Peter in John 21, do you love me? And he just blurted out, oh, Lord, you know I love you. You know I love you. Why do you keep asking me? I love you. I do love you. And Jesus said to him, be my sheep. And Peter would have to begin to acknowledge that his love was very weak. And how many times do husbands and wives have to say to one another, Do you love me? And the answer is, has to be, Yes, I love you, but may God help my lack of love. Love, repentance, forgiveness. Must they be perfect to be true and real? Well, no, but mature faith is most aware of the weakness of these things. There's no perfect obedience. We're justified through faith alone, but the faith that saves is never alone. The works are a necessity. The very faith itself, by definition, is a faith that works, that is inseparably joined to works. And God will accept your imperfect sacrifice of the praise of lips. At the same time you confess your weak faith, you must fight your unbelief. You must take it by the throat. You must count your unbelief as an enemy to be defeated. You must never be content to live with your unbelief. Take it to Christ. Take it to the cross. It's a shame that so many of us are content to remain people of little faith. Faith is a gift of God. It's given to His people. You must plead with God for it. Lord, increase our faith. Help me in my unbelief. It's very interesting that the same word that this man used in asking for help for his son, in verse 22, he says, help us if you can do anything. Help us. And then in verse 24, he uses the same word, help my unbelief. The word help comes, scholars tell us, from two words that mean cry and run. And it's in the present tense here so that the man is saying, be helping my unbelief. And you have to say not just once here, but you must say every day that you live, Lord, be helping my unbelief. I cry to you. I run to you. This man was totally dependent on Jesus to help his son, and he was totally dependent upon Jesus to give him faith. His son needed to be healed, but something else needed to be healed first. He's, he's saying, in essence, I cried to you to help my afflicted child, 
But now I see that faith is a necessary condition and realizing how small and weak my faith is, I cry to you to help me, give me faith. I am as dependent upon you for the faith as for the healing. Help me just as I am. God, be merciful to me, the doubter. If we have faith, we give all credit to God. If we don't have faith, or if our faith is weak, we have no one to blame but ourselves. We are without excuse. Our unbelief is our unbelief. God does not owe you faith. He would be perfectly just to give us over, to let us go our own way, to let us continue in our unbelief, and that throws us back certainly upon uh, the old covenant passage that we read today, doesn't it? The secret things belong to the Lord our God. We don't know what's going to happen. We don't know how things are going to turn out. But the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children, that we may obey all the words of this law. We don't preoccupy ourselves with what's in the future, what's going to happen, but we must do what God has told us to do. Why witness to someone else if God has determined from the foundation of the world who is faithful? Because God has told you to witness. And because God will use your witness as an instrument. Why should we pray if God has determined all of the outcome of all of our prayers from the foundation of the world? Number one, God has told you to pray. That's all you need to do. And he will use, he has told us, he will use our prayer as instruments of accomplishing his own will. And so now, Jesus took the boy by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose. Uh, years ago, in the 1800s, there was a story from uh, New England that occurred in the, in the dead of winter. A man was lost in the woods. This man was trying to find his way to a village, but it was on the other side of the river. He knew that when the sun went down, he would freeze to death if he did not find his way across. And so the river, again, was broad and deep, and he began to edge his way out as it grew darker. He edged his way out on the ice as the river was frozen over, but he did not know if the river would hold him. He edged his way out until he got a little bit out, and then he was so afraid, so fearful, that he crept down on his hands and knees and began to go one inch at a time, hand after hand, knee after knee, on the ice. And when he got to the very center of that river, he heard a very large sound, a rumbling that occurred. And he looked to the side and saw a man in a wagon driving a team of horses across the river. There you are. And there I am. On our hands and knees. We're trusting in ourselves. We don't believe as we should. But it's not the strength of our faith that saves. It's not the strength of our faith that accomplishes anything. It's the object of our faith. It's faith in Christ. Weak faith in a strong plan will get you across the river. Strong faith in a weak mind will land you in the river. And as you come to the Lord's table today, you make the confession of faith. You say as you come, Lord, I believe. You confess
confessed to Christ the faith that you have, but you also make a confession of sin. When you come, you say, Lord, help my unbelief. My favorite uh, question and answer in the Westminster Larger Catechism, I believe, is question number 172. It says, May one who doubts his being in Christ or of his due preparation come to the Lord's Supper? And the answer is, one who doubts his being in Christ or of his due preparation to the sacrament of the Lord's Supper may have true interest in Christ, though he is not yet assured of it, and in God's account has it, if he is duly affected with the apprehension of the lack of it, and unfailingly desires to be found in Christ and to depart from iniquity, in which case, because promises are made and this sacrament is appointed for even the relief of weak and doubting Christians, he is to bewail his unbelief and labor to have his doubts resolved. And in so doing, he may and ought to come to the Lord's Supper that he may be further strengthened. You weak and doubting Christians, Jesus says to you, Come unto me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly of heart, and you shall find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Jesus says, He who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a man who built his house on the rock. The rains fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house. But it did not fall, for it had been founded upon a rock. And therefore, you may see, my hope is built on nothing less. Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name, on Christ. The solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. All other ground is sinking sand. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.